0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at org. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the four-month ministry of the prophet Haggai. Remember, for 10 years the work of reconstructing the temple had stopped and the people were no longer focused on the house of God. They were focused on their own houses. And after a decade of that neglect, God raises up prophets to speak to the people. And the first one he raises is the prophet Haggai. Now the events that we're about to talk about all take place in the course of one year. They happen in one year and it's the year that is called in scripture the second year of Darius, the second year of the reign of the Persian king Darius. Now, our calendar is different from their calendar. So, that one year for them, for us, actually is separated over the course of two years. So, 520 BC and then a little bit in 519. So, everything that we're talking about here happened in 520 from August to December. The night visions took place in February of 519, but technically they actually happened in the same year because February of 519 on our calendar was the 11th month of the second year of Darius. So what you have to imagine is God suddenly goes to work. He's suddenly speaking and every month in sequence over the course of four months, he reveals an Oracle. He gives a word to the people like clockwork. And then he skips a month and the visions come to the prophet Zechariah. So this morning, we lay the foundation that gets us where we need to get before we look at those night visions, all of the oracles of Haggai and the first word that we get from Zechariah in one way or another focus on the temple on the significance of the temple on the future of the temple and what's going to happen in this temple. And as you're going to see all of these oracles, all of these words fitted in one of two categories. If you sum them up, they're either going to be warnings or they're going to be promises. In fact, there's going to be kind of a one-two pattern here where first you get a warning and then you get a promise and then you get a warning and then you get a promise. So a rebuke or a warning is followed by a promise, by some good news. We're going to see the warnings and promises that God spoke to that uh, generation of returned exiles. And then we're going to see how those warnings and those promises are still meant for us. And then finally, we're going to think about that temple and the temple that Jesus is building, a temple of living stone. So first let's look at the warnings and promises, the oracles of Haggai and Zechariah. The first Oracle we touched on last time, this is when Haggai first begins to prophesy and he calls the people to repentance and tells them it is time to build. Remember in Haggai one, we saw last time, that Haggai says to the people, you know, he kind of uh, states what you might think of as popular opinion. People around here say, it's not time to build the house of the Lord. And then he answers from the Lord and says, according to God, why is it that you live in such nice paneled houses while my house is in ruins? So there's a rebuke here. There's a warning, but there's more to it than that. So the people have been focused on their own cares and their own concerns They've been building their own houses instead of building the house of the Lord. But the question is, how's that going? Is that strategy working? Are you receiving blessings by neglecting the house of God and instead focusing on your own? And the answer to that is is no, you're not. So this word comes from Haggai in August, the sixth month of Darius. And it happens at a time when the people are all gathered together publicly. So on this day, they are gathered together to celebrate a feast or a festival of the new moon, marking the beginning of a new month. While so the people are there. Zerubbabel, the governor, is there. Joshua, the high priest, is there. And at that moment, when all the people are gathered, Haggai gets up and he begins to prophesy to the people. And he points out the fact that their work, their, their effort to build their own kingdoms, it has not worked. We see in Haggai one nine, he says, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. All of the. The, the things that people associate with good blessings, the good harvest, the strong returns, all of those things, despite the fact that people were doing the work, they were not getting the return that they ought to have gotten. And God says, the reason is, I'm not letting you have it. I'm not letting your efforts prosper. Like, it comes and I blow it away. I prevent you from benefiting from this futile efforts because... You're doing this instead of doing what I have called you to do. If you watch the summary video of the the book of Haggai, one of the points that's made, which is really good is that this warning that Haggai gives is, is couch in covenantal terms. The blessings that are mentioned are blessings that you receive for keeping covenant with God. And so the fact that your work is futile demonstrates that you have not obeyed God's covenant, that you have broken faith with the Lord, who is your God. So that's the message of Haggai in his first Oracle. And if you keep reading in chapter one, we get a a kind of historical coda. And we find out that when the prophet speaks, the people listen, that the leaders Zerubbabel and Joshua decide it is now time to listen to God and rebuild. And the people join them, and they begin the process of rebuilding. So in the sixth month of Darius, the first oracle comes, and about 23 days later, work begins once again on the temple. Work starts up. It it just gets going. The following month, as the work is just underway, a second oracle. The prophet speaks a second time, and now he talks about the condition of the temple that's being built. And the context here is interesting as well. So this date that the second oracle comes to, this is in the seventh month of Darius on our October 17th, 520. That's the last day of the feast of tabernacles or booths. It's sometimes called. So this is a seven day observance where the people go out and they live in tents the way that they did in the wilderness exile as a way of remembering their deliverance from the wilderness into the land of promise. And as they do this, you can imagine it would have been very poignant, especially to these people to think about that exiled generation in the days of Joshua, because they too were exiles who had returned into the land of promise. So you might think this festival meant more to them than it could have meant to anyone else because their situation was so perfectly parallel. And indeed the words of the Oracle parallel the word spoken to Joshua in Joshua chapter one, just as Joshua was told by God to be strong. Now the leaders of the people and the people themselves are told by God to be strong. What's interesting as well about this date is the end of the feast of tabernacles is also when Solomon's temple was dedicated. If you go back and you look at first Kings eight or second Chronicles seven at the accounts of the dedication of Solomon's temple, You'll see that this is when it happens and that this is followed by a Shekinah glory and Hebrew kavod descends upon the temple. And that glory illustrates, it demonstrates the presence of God in the house of God. So as these people are rebuilding the temple, you better believe they're thinking about the temple that went before. And on this day of all days, they're thinking about the dedication of Solomon's temple as they build this more modest and uh, disappointing temple. And as they think these thoughts, God speaks through the prophet Haggai and he says, yes, this temple may look modest, but in fact, this temple will be more glorious than the one that preceded it as, as small and inconsequential as it appears to be to you as you rebuild it today, what I will do in this temple will far surpass the glory of the temple that went before it. He says in Haggai 2, 6 and 7, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. That passage may sound familiar to you, because these are the words. This is the prophecy that the author of Hebrews quotes in Hebrews chapter 12, which is that glorious chapter about the two mountains. Right? You've not come to, to Zion, or you've not come to Sinai, but to Zion, the chapter that ends by saying, "Our God is a consuming fire. Here the author of Hebrews quotes, this promise. And says, this is still to come. God will do this. He will shake the world. And what that means is, once everything is shaken, all that will remain is that which cannot be shaken. And God will give us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we heard the warning and then the promise of glory to come. And now something interesting happens. We've had, you know, each month an oracle from Haggai, but now in the third month, a new prophet steps in. God calls a second prophet to reinforce the words of the first. And this is where Zechariah gives his first oracle. And what's interesting about this is Zechariah's first oracle, which is in Zechariah 1, 1 through 6, sounds a lot like the word of Haggai. It's also a kind of... uh, Warning slash promise to the people. Now, if you keep reading in Zechariah, what comes after sounds very different. Zechariah as a prophet is going to get these, these wonderful visions. But for now, in this four-month period, God is speaking very directly through these rebukes and these challenges to his people. And the prophet Zechariah, as he speaks to the people, says in verse 3, This is the word of the Lord, return to me and I will return to you return to me and I will return to you, which are ironic words to speak to people who have literally already returned. These are the returnees. These are the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem, who have been here for a little while. And yet the prophet says to them, return to me and I will return to you. They must have wondered at words like that because hadn't they already returned, but there's a difference between returning to Jerusalem and returning to the Lord. As the prophet points out, didn't your fathers also live in Jerusalem? Didn't your fathers dwell in the city? And what happened to them? They were not faithful to the Lord and they went into exile. It's not enough. In other words, for you simply to live in the city, it's not enough for you to return to the city. You must also return to the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? The Lord asks and the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds. So has he dealt with us. It's not enough to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. You must return to the Lord. You must return from Jerusalem. The prophet says, Your evil ways and your evil deeds. There must be repentance. There must be a return to the Lord. And then the next month, as the work continues, we're now in like the third month of the temple being rebuilt, and the prophet Haggai speaks for the final time. This is in the ninth month of Darius, in our December 18th, 520. And on this day, there are two oracles that are given. And the fact that they're given one after another suggests a connectedness between the two, between the two ideas. The first of these visions, which is the third oracle you'll find in Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19. And this one's a little interesting, a little complex, because it's a dialogue between Haggai speaking for the Lord and the priests. And it concerns uh, clean and unclean things. Now, I'll paraphrase the, the dialogue for you. Like the, the essential question behind this is, if something that is clean touches something that is unclean, what happens? One option is, when the holy thing, when the clean thing touches the unclean, the unclean thing turns clean. It is cleansed by that touch. So he asks the priest, is that how it works? And the priests are like, no, that's not how it works. How it works is when something clean touches something unclean, they both become unclean. That's how it works. One commentator puts it. uh, The point is holiness isn't contagious, but defilement is. And the reason for this word is that the people are building the house of God, but they're doing it with their unclean hands. And if their confidence, if their hope is in the building, the building can't deliver. Only the grace of God can deliver. So while the new temple will be a focus of glory, it's important for the people to realize it's not the building, but what it signifies and what will happen within it that matters. In other words, there's a shift that we see here from the physical to the spiritual. We're familiar with this from the New Testament. When Christ speaks of the kingdom, he speaks not of a physical kingdom, but of a spiritual kingdom. But Jesus, when he says things like this, acts as if this isn't new. As if we ought to have known these things. If we were, were, were well versed in our Old Testament, we would understand what he's saying. This is why he says this. Because already in the prophets of post-exile, we see it isn't the physical, it is the spiritual That is being emphasized the idea of the temple and what it means will be transformed over time, particularly by Jesus. Their trust shouldn't be in the building. It should be in the grace of God. And that's why what God does is he has them start rebuilding, but he still withholds the blessings until now. He says, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider is the seed yet in the barn. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. You've been doing the work, but I still haven't been giving the blessings. Now he says, from this day on, I will bless you. Now that changes. So what he's done is shown them it's not obedience. It's not the fact that you're doing what you were supposed to do that allows you to earn the blessings. I've withheld the blessings until now, and now I give them to you by my grace. It is my grace, not your obedience, that leads to blessing. And then, in the same day, later on, the final oracle from Haggai. And this one's different. This one addresses Zerubbabel, the governor. This is Haggai uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 20 through verse 23. Haggai starts talking once again about the shaking that will take place. God says, I'm about to do this. I'm about to shake the world in this way. And then he says in verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Remember, Zerubbabel is a descendant of the, the Davidic monarchy. He is a descendant of the old Kings in the line of David. And now we're being told he's going to be made like a signet ring. So a signet ring is one of those rings that has a little picture on it. And when you stamp it into wax, it leaves an impression. So this is a signet ring. If you could uh, see close enough, you'd see there's a lion on this ring and he's holding a Bible. He symbolizes St. Mark, one of the four gospel authors the the briefest of the gospels which is ironic considering that uh, a pastor who bears his name is not the briefest of the preachers this ring when it's pressed into the wax leaves an impression a seal that signifies the idea of a signet ring is that if something bears the seal it speaks with the authority of the one whose seal it is now Back a few generations, the prophet Jeremiah had talked about a king who was like a signet ring. His name was Jeconiah. He was the guy that Zerubbabel was descended from, but it wasn't a good prophecy like this one. Jeremiah said, Jeconiah is like a a signet ring that I'm pulling off my finger and throwing away. I'm casting him off. The the hope of my people will not be in these physical kings. I've abandoned them throws it away. You find that in Jeremiah chapter 22, but then in Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah begins to prophesy about the righteous branch, about the, the, the branch from the root of Jesse who will come the King who will come in the line of David, who will be our Messiah. And we'll see Zechariah speak of this righteous branch as well in Zechariah chapter three. In fact, when he does this in chapter three, verse eight, little preview of things to come at the same time, he also reveals to us that men like Zerubbabel men like Joshua are intended to be types or signs of things to come. He says, they are men who are a sign. So these are prophecies that will be fulfilled, not in the lives of these men, but these men signify the king who is to come, the priest who is to come. So in the same way that before the exile in Jeremiah's day, the prophets anticipated a Messiah, a king that God would send, who would establish a kingdom that would reign forever. The exiles of the here and now, the post-exile prophets take up, this same theme. But here's what's interesting. Even after the restoration of Jerusalem, this King is still to come. This is not the new Jerusalem. This is not that restored and fulfilled kingdom. It is still to come in the future. And that's the significance of the prophetic word in the ministry of Haggai. Haggai motivates the people to work today in anticipation of what God will do in the glorious future. And these warnings and promises are as much for us as they are for them, because we continue to wait for that shaking of all things, when that unshakable kingdom of Jesus Christ will be given to us. When you think about what those exiles had to learn, they're the same lessons that we need to learn. Like they returned to the land, but they didn't return to the Lord. They thought it was enough to just go through the motions. They thought it was enough to just be in the right geography. But it wasn't. It wasn't. They had to turn from their evil ways and return to the Lord. Not only that, but God made a promise to them. They had to return to Him, but God promised, I will return. And when I return, I will make the temple glorious. God promised to them a glory that far surpassed what they had experienced when they were judging the events of their day. And they were, they were saying things aren't as good as they used to be. God said, things are going to be better than they've ever been. Just wait and see. God pointed them to that future hope. And he points us that future hope as well. They received a warning that there could be no restoration without repentance from the heart and God's unmerited grace that they wanted to see all of the ruin restored that couldn't happen without repentance from the heart that couldn't happen without the grace of God. And we too must understand that same thing. There can be no restoration. There can be no making of a better world without repentance, without a turning to God, without God's unmerited favor on us. And then they were given a promise, a glorious promise that motivated everything that gave them something to hold on to, that gave them a hope to look forward to. God told them that his chosen king would reign from the temple, that from this place that their humble hands were building, a king would come who would reign, a king would come who would redeem all things. This gave them hope to build this gave them a reason to build and it's what we have to remember as well when the prophet haggai started speaking to the people you know what he said to them you know how he got their attention what he encouraged them to do he didn't come to them and say hey hey look to jesus he came to them and said consider your ways consider your ways you have all this disappointment and frustration all these unfulfilled dreams but consider your ways considering how you live. Why would you expect these blessings? Why would you expect these dreams to be fulfilled return to the Lord? You must turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but even so, although there was a call to obedience here at the same time, and this is important to remember obedience was never the the direct source of blessing. God didn't establish a kind of quid pro quo where if you serve me, I'll serve you. If you want good things, you do good things for God and God will take care of you. That sort of thing. Always. It was clear. Obedience was required, but blessings flow from grace, not from merit. We too have to remember this because we've been given in Jesus Christ, a promise of salvation by grace alone. And if you're clinging to anything but Christ, if you're clinging to your merit, to the fact that you're a good person, to the fact that you deserve it, the fact that you can think of so many people who are less deserving than you of the favor of God, you are clinging to the wrong thing because it is only by grace that we are saved. And we have to learn as they did that physical glory only hints at a much greater spiritual glory, a much greater spiritual reality that is to come. It's not the temple. It's not the building that sanctifies, but the king who dwells there. As we come to a close, I want you to think for just a moment about the significance of the temple. As I said, all of these words in one way or another have to do with the temple. As they're building this temple, it makes sense. Stacking stone upon stone that you would think about what the significance of this building was. Well, the reason there was a temple in the first place, what the temple signified was the presence of God. As I said, when the glory, the kavod, came down on on Solomon's temple, the reason that was significant was because it meant God dwells there. God dwells with his people. God is with us. Word that, that we encapsulate in the word Emmanuel. That was the significance of the temple. It meant God is with us. But this temple, although the people did rebuild it in 516, they got it going and they dedicated it. You know, what never happened in this temple that there was never a, a great blinding light. There was never a cloud. There was never kind of a, a rumbling as the glory of God lowered down onto this temple to signify God with us. In fact, in Ezekiel 10, the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of, of the glory of God leaving the temple before it was destroyed, but also never could happen in this temple is the day of atonement on the day of atonement. Every year, the priest would make a sacrifice that would atone for the, the, the sins of the people. They would take the blood from that sacrifice and they would put it on the, the throne on the altar on the Ark of the Covenant, which was lost after that Babylonian exile and was never reconstituted, not discovered despite what the movies would have you believe it was gone. And so from that day forward, it was never possible to have a day of atonement the way it was meant to be observed. And yet the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 3, 9 gives us the words of the Lord saying, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Words that speak to the day of atonement, but not the one that had gone before the one that was coming at the cross of Jesus Christ. This second temple and the glory of this temple was never going to come about because it recreated the rituals of the temple that had been destroyed. The glory of the temple that was being built would be the coming of Christ Jesus Christ, who changed our understanding of what the temple really means. Jesus had a zeal for the temple, right? In all the gospels, we get this account of Jesus cleansing the temple. He drives out the money changers. He cares. He says, zeal for your house has consumed me. But the same Jesus who shows that zeal for the house of God, for the physical temple, also says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. That's in John's gospel, chapter two. And then John adds this gloss, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The meaning of the temple changes in Christ. And suddenly it's the body of Christ that is the temple that is being built. It's not the physical building, but the spiritual building, which is why in Ephesians two, Paul talks about the church as a building built out of us, for we are the building blocks. Christ is the cornerstone. And, and this is a habitation built for God to dwell among us. Peter in 1 Peter two five speaks of us, the brothers and sisters of Christ in the church as living stones. Who Christ is building into a dwelling place for the Lord as I said already in the Old Testament, this shift from the physical to the spiritual is evidence. But in Christ, we see it clearly. In Christ, we see that this is the glorious temple still under construction. But the place where he dwells and will dwell with his people. Jesus, as I said, had this habit when people were baffled. By this teaching, when they said, I don't get where you're coming from. Jesus would say, how do you not know this? He says to Nicodemus, you call yourself a teacher of the Jews and you don't know these things. And we sympathize. We're like, I don't know. How could they have known? But as you look at the words of Haggai, you understand where Jesus is coming from. Jesus might as well just have said, you never read Haggai? It's two chapters. It's an easy read. And it spells these things out for you. It reveals this truth to you. And if you go back and you look at Haggai and Zechariah, which is to come once you've seen it, you'll say it's all here. How could they have missed it? But the fact is they did. And we do too, because we don't pay attention to what we've been told. The warning of the prophets is consider your ways. They warn us, they rebuke us, they challenge us to consider the way we live our lives. But the promises speak too. the promises speak to, and they come along with those warnings. The same prophet who says to you, consider your ways, says to you, consider his ways, consider his ways and live with that. Thank you for listening.